So this is another episode of On Irish Road, and this is going to be different because I nothing's really transpired. Um, it's been a crazy five months. My family has lost four people that were close in one way or another. Um, you know, my dad, obviously. On April the 30th, on May the 1st, my mother-in-law died. On, um, actually, I'm not quite sure the date she passed away, but in June, I attended a friend's funeral. She died of cancer. In her 40s, single mom, business owner, amazing human being. And then my daughter lost a friend who was 18. Um to a potential drug overdose so and that was just the past two weeks um just been crazy and and then I had gallbladder surgery that's not really that crazy but it's certainly just another thing you have to deal with in the midst of all the other things you have to deal with so anyway and I'm getting ready to go back out to Pennsylvania to help support my sister who's having a hard time it's been a long summer this is a long summer and in the midst of it you know three kids and house and husband and like trying to just deal with your own shit basically trying to figure out how to move forward and not just you know wallow in the past and that's been fun but so this is more of a I think just um, like moving on episode, um, we looked into private investigators. They're so expensive. So there's just, there's no way. I think for a long time, I really felt like we had some momentum and we were coming up with information. And at some point you're just, you're exhausted. You know, you look at people who do, um, these types of investigations for things that have happened to their family members. And I think the one thing that sustains most of them is that it was somebody that deserved to be alive, that deserved another day, you know, that brought some joy and happiness into the world. And I think the one thing, you know, my my therapist asked me, because you know, I said, I was talking about how, you know, grieving and death really reveals your true heart and who you really are and the things about you maybe you didn't know. And she asked me, well, what did it re- reveal about you? And I had a really hard time answering that question. Um, I don't really know that I have an answer to that. Um... You know, I think if anything, it's helped me accept that death is just a real part of life. And we can go through years and years and years without experiencing anything that kind of shakes us to the core. Reminds us of, you know, the ills of the past or, you know, and then you can have it all happen in five months. (laughs) Not all of it. I'm sure there's more around the bend, but... Um, in some ways it's prepared me each time for losing somebody 
you know, well, first of all, I have, a, you know, something to compare it to. At least it's not how my father died. At least it's not, you know, these people coming in and hijacking our, you know, our grieving and our history and all of that. Because that was definitely the worst part for me was the not being able to go through the normal motions of, you know, like what my husband's family has been able to do, which is packing up, you know, remembering, sharing grieving together, walking forward into the future, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's been, we've all had handled it differently and, um, and alone and, you know, and then there's no support system there. It's really just the three of us. You know, my mom tries to interject and help as much as she can, but, you know, she's still kind of tied to that. Not so much. I mean, as we talk to her more, but that idea that, you know, you forgive him. Oh, you just have to, oh, we had such a hard life. Oh, he, you know, those are just excuses to allow bad behavior to continue. And you have to stop making those for people. You know, I don't care what kind of upbringing you had. Um, yeah, it certainly puts more stress and makes it harder to be always handle things correctly. I know that for sure. Cause that's me, but it should never make it harder to, be a loving parent. Um, of course my dad had a personality disorder that, you know, he likely had no control over. Um, I don't know, I guess any narcissists know they're messing with people. So I guess he just had the inability to be anybody different than who he was. Um, you know, the demons were greater than the, than the angels or whatever. So, um, it makes it really hard sometimes to move forward because you don't really get that. You know, you can't, if you reflect on any of the positive memories, you're hurting yourself, actually. I mean, it's, it's people will be like, oh, just remember the positive things. Just remember the good. Well, first of all, there really weren't that many good times. And second of all, when you look back at the good times, you realize they were just a bunch of BS. They were fact-finding missions on, on behalf of my dad or or, you know, that zero entry back into our lives to try to, to gain grace and favor. It was all part of the game, the messed up, you know, game of, of fucking with our minds and, and hurting us and dividing us. And so trying to grieve with bad memories and bad players has just been really difficult, but I kind of feel like I'm over it. We went to Oregon and I had mentioned, you know, my dad's ashes and I take him in my purse. And well, my dad is no longer in my purse or in my mantle. Um, I went to Cannon Beach and I spread his ashes there. It was a cold day. It was just recently and they had had a big storm the night before. So there was flooding. I guess they haven't had much rain up there. We actually went up there for a wedding for one of my nieces and um, made the drive from Portland and spent the morning in Cannon Beach and it was wonderful, perfect and stormy waters and cold and I just took his little pill bottle of ashes and walked out there by myself and said I have nothing left to say I have nothing left to say goodbye you know and I just, that was it. I just kind of spread them in the water and, you know, that was it. No tears, no, 
major reflection. I think at some point you just, you've done it. You've thought about it. You've heard yourself say it a million times and you start to realize how it's holding you back and not letting you move forward. And so, and I feel the same way about trying to investigate them. I don't know that there is a way to move forward um, while, you know, really sitting in the past. I think that justice, you know, that word justice was applied to the situation. And sure, it would be great to have them uh, held accountable for the things that they did. But at what cost to myself and my mental health and my siblings? And, and again, I mean, I don't think either one of them really had the capacity or the ability just because of other things going on in their lives to do that. And I don't have the capacity or the ability to take it on by myself. And quite frankly, it doesn't feel good. And I right now really just need to do things that make me feel better and are healthy for my family and myself mentally. So that's, I'm kind of putting that baby to bed unless it, you know, starts screaming and you know, there's something there that I wasn't aware of before, but right now there's, there's nothing there that I'm aware of. Um, haven't received any money from the estate and have not, you know, heard something from his private attorney. I had to fill out some form. So I don't know how that's moving forward or at what pace that's moving forward. And quite frankly, I guess I kind of don't, I care, but I don't, care enough to really look into it anymore not right now more pressing things right each tragedy and each thing that's happened has there's nothing like a new tragedy to make you move on from the last one I guess is what I'm trying to say and then hopefully just into another a year where we can just kind of go camping and be um and so I just I kind of want to talk about the things that happened to my dad he was Went to the Hershey Boys School. My nana Cahill, who is is dead, um, for some time now, and her husband, John, my father's dad, had three kids. And my nana was an uh, artist. They lived in Upper Darby, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And when my dad was, I believe, eleven, um, he's the oldest of three. My uh, grandpa, his father, died from cancer and it was sudden and quick and you know back then they didn't have you know all the science and you know medical prowess that they have now and so there was really nothing they could do they didn't catch it early and even if they had at that point it probably still would have not been able to do much so so that was that and um I think for some time she tried to raise the three boys. There was an insurance policy and there was some money, right? So she could have afforded to keep them. But in that day and age, with my dad apparently, now this is what she said, and I don't have any definitive proof that this is true, being kind of a wild child. But, I mean, he was a young man, 11, you know, in the streets of Philly, you know, so you can can kind of imagine right? He was out there doing his thing. So, um, he would, this would have been like in the early fifties. Right. And, um, he, 
apparently, according to her, was the reason that she decided to send them to the Hershey Boys School. At the time, it was just for boys. Uh, it was a working dairy farm at the time as well. This is, again, before, you know, regulation of child labor and, you know, boys' homes. And, um, you know, it seems like every other day you're hearing about some school somewhere in some country where they're digging up the remains of children who, you know, were there, you know, and then went missing. Um, so as you can imagine, there was a lot of abuse. My dad said that most of it was from older boys to the younger boys. So they had these group homes placed throughout, you know, sprawling boys school, again, working dairy farm, many, 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 many acres. And, um, each home, large group home would have, you know, a barn, all the workings of of a working farm. And, so they were put in whatever group home with whatever parents, right? It's normally a married couple that um, maybe they were retired. Maybe they, who knows? But they were probably not mental health professionals who were educated, trained, and licensed back then. They were people that were like, yeah, I'll take the job. And so they were not educated in how to handle kids, especially kids from all sorts of different backgrounds. Most of them had lost both parents. Maybe they had been abandoned. Maybe their parents had been killed. You know, who, maybe their parents were too poor. Who knows? But they were not coming from great, you know, upbringings. These were kids that had, you know, were, were dealing with lots of stresses at a very early age and without any real support system. And so, you put all these boys together different ages in a group home with different house parents. And as you can imagine, there was a tremendous amount of abuse. And so my dad would tell me some of the stories we would drive through Hershey. You know, now it's different. It's a, obviously there's a lot more regulation. Kids are not actively working on the farm. I mean, they're doing some work. Sure. They're learning how to do things. I mean, it's part of education, right? But not to the extreme that they were before. And, um, and it's boys and girls. And, um, you know, I know there's a lot of money associated with that school. And I think, you know, for me, I blamed Hershey Boys School for a lot of my problems because I knew that my dad had such a horrible time there and witnessed such horrible things and suffered so much abuse. But, you know, I think back then you kind of have to, you look back, right, sometimes to understand what you need to do differently. And it sounds like they have really tried to do things differently. I know there have been some things since then that are questionable. And I think that my only concern is like, let's just bring the dark stuff out into the light and share it and let it out so you don't repeat it, right? And um, it seems like maybe that's, you know, I think they've done some of that. I can't say that they've done a lot of that. Um, But, so one of those stories is that, you know, in these big barns, and, you know, I think we've all been in a barn once or twice, but these are huge barns, right? These are ginormous, big, huge barns. I mean, I can't even, I don't know how tall they are, but um, as you can imagine, in a barn, there's beams running, right? structurally necessary and they would have 
boys and these are other boys not necessarily the house parents although there are terrible stories about house parents as well that would walk the beam with a blindfold on and other boys would you know bully them into doing this so it's just a bullying situation gone already so um and these older boys would pick younger boys and they would make them walk this beam with a blindfold on well on one side the beam they fell to the left let's say there was hay something to cushion their fall on the other side there was nothing but they didn't tell them what side the hay was on so the boys when they lost their balance kind of had to pick which side they were going to fall to and um i know that my dad said one one boy died that way um they would also lock them in milk milk lockers (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing nervously because it's horrible. And I know that at least one person died that way. Wasn't found until the next morning. Younger boy. Well, in most cases, these would be younger boys because they weren't able to protect themselves. So you either bullied or you got bullied. And the majority of them would much rather bully than be bullied and um, didn't have house parents that were supportive of the reports they would make about things that had happened the black eyes the broken arms the crying Um, and my dad would beg beg my grandmother to come get him please please and she could come up and take him for like breaks and things like that and she just chose not to so it was a life filled with abandonment and hopelessness and anger and not a lot of kind tender moments but I have two uncles right that also went to Hershey boys school and they were younger they were they they were there longer than my dad my dad went when he was what 11 or 12 and my uncles went you know younger than that they didn't go at the same time I think she kept them for a little bit longer and put my dad in there but she eventually they both joined him but they were not in the same boys' home. I think at one point, maybe Tom and my dad were, or Tom and Barry were, I can't remember. And, um, you know, so they, I think, had a better experience than my dad, um, probably because my dad was the type to rock, rock the boat a little bit more, uh, mouth off a little bit more. Um, and maybe wasn't the house parent's favorite. He would run away. One of the stories he told me was, you know, he'd run away and they'd bring him back. He'd run away, they'd bring him back. And so this one state police officer um, had brought him back a couple of times and finally said, hey, let's go get some ice cream. And so he took him to this ice cream store. And he said, you run away all the time. What's going on? And my dad told him about the abuse. And um, he said, well, this isn't going to happen again. And so he took my dad back up to school at the time, you know, they were really hush-hush and they didn't like to talk to the police, of course, because of what was going on. And there were, they were covering up any of the malfeasance that were going on. And um, so the state police officer comes up and with my dad in tow and says, look, I'm bringing him back, but I want to talk to whoever is in charge of this house. Well, he's not going to talk to you. Well, he needs to come out. And he said, if this ever happens again... I'm going to have a problem. You don't want to see him, you know, out there. And I'm going to stop by periodically to check on these boys. And that was all well and good for a while when my dad was in that same, you know, house. But then at some point he moved 
and he never saw that state trooper again. And the abuse just continued. They just got better at hiding it. So my dad, at some point, you know, all the abuse, all the things that they would do to one another, and I'm sure he did to others, and um, just that inner rage and not having anybody to talk about it to. It's nature and nurture. I mean, he's probably born with some of those tendencies already, and then based on his upbringing, it just facilitated it and created this perfect storm. We were watching this show about this guy who killed his wife by pushing her off a cliff at Rocky Mountain National Park and apparently did the same thing to the first woman, his first wife as well. Um, Not at Rocky Mountain National Park, but a car fell on her. He set it up so that would happen. So he kills both of his wives and they're describing this man, right? There's a profiler. And my husband and I both had like chills just because it was so my dad that you know manipulation and the gaslighting but like specifically the obsession with financial documents and creating a facade that was bs i mean he really you know he so he told people he worked for the fbi my dad worked for the department of health and human services he was a psychologist that part is true and um but he couldn't handle it. So he didn't even do that very long before he had a woman who was over him and he couldn't, he couldn't handle that, right? He, he just, he wanted to be top dog. He didn't want to be told what to do. Um, so he had, he badgered his doctor into writing a note saying that his blood pressure went up every time he went to work and that it was a hazard. So he got disability from the government. You didn't tell that to anybody. We knew that. And I have the letter that proves that. And so then he abandons his family here in the Midwest and moves out to Pennsylvania to work for my uncle, who had a successful business. Um, And my dad was like, I don't know what his office manager, whatever his, you know, he ran the show, basically stood around and bullshitted with people and made them do things and made them feel like shit and made some of them feel good if he liked them whatever I mean it was it was game right it was whoever he thought was somebody he wanted to be in good graces with he kissed their ass and you know the manipulation was kind but if it was somebody that he looked down on somebody below him he thought was unimportant then um he did the opposite and the manipulation was cruel um, including with my sister's husband. Um, I'll go into that in a minute because some of these are just too crazy. Too crazy. Um, so he, <laughs> he went out there, excuse me, and he worked there for some time. And he didn't, like, my mom didn't get more money, but my dad was drawing disability and he was getting paid under the table. Um, not 100%, but he was, he was, doing what he needed to do to get paid. Now, I don't think my uncle was aware of this at all. I think my dad did what he wanted to do with the money, and my uncle was so busy running the company that he didn't know, but it was crazy. So my dad was able to amass a large amount of wealth because, number one, he didn't pay for his kids. He was not a generous person. Um, Rarely saw us, and if he did, he would, like, drop in, like, some grand surprise, and he were like, hey, I have a whole fucking life here, dude, and you're a dick. So why are you here? So it was not the 
um, reception that he wanted. It was, you know, a lot colder than he expected. He thought we would just drop everything anytime he showed up. I called them drive-bys. My dad would do a drive-by. That's what it felt like. I'd almost have preferred he used a gun because then I could be like, see, that hurt. Where we do tell, well, it's your father. Oh, it's your dad. Don't do that. Just because somebody's family does not make them worthy of your time, attention, you know, any kind of reception into your life. None of that. And um, so he didn't see us, didn't pay for us, you know, um, had totally, you know, bamboozled my mom financially. Um, In fact, at one point when I did live with him for a very short period of time while he was still here, and then he decided he was going to move back east. I was living with him at the time, but he didn't want anything to do with me. And uh, so I had a friend, and he was like, well, you can live with your friend. So I lived with my friend and her family, and they were crazy as well. Um, which I found out one day when I came back to, like, the third house in, like, less than a year that we were living in. And the mom was in the back shed with flour all over her rocking back and forth saying I have to make the cookies and um and then accused me of sleeping with her husband so there there were some fun stories for me too here but um so he was paying my mom $300 a month for each of his kids and when I moved in with them he gave them 200 so he was he was making money it was was a win-win for him there um and they thought that was a lot of money right but these were not people who were financially inclined to make good decisions so so he never took care of us, didn't pay for anything, you know, and if he did, I assure you, he wrote it down somewhere. We didn't know it wasn't a gift. At some point he was, he was keeping track and, uh, we were burdens, right? We were liabilities, not assets to my dad at any point. And that's how he viewed pretty much everything. It's very transactional and, um, from a monetary stand standpoint. And so he, you know, he lived, he lived there. He, he was making double money. Um, wasn't paying his fair share in taxes. I'm sure of it. And he invested and he became obsessed with it. So he would just invest his money. And sometimes he was rich and sometimes he was poor. And and by that, I just mean it was whatever face he wanted to present. Now my dad always had money. I know that because we went back through some of his financial documents when I was there in December and I could go back, you know, to 2004, 1999 and see, even when he was saying he didn't have any money, he had an insane amount of money um, for somebody who didn't own their own business, wasn't, you know, doing anything outside of a normal job. Of course, he was, like I said, making double income. So, and he wasn't really paying for anything. It was super cheap. So he paid for things that made him feel good, but nothing for anybody else. Occasionally, he would throw you a bone. It would feel big because for kids that didn't have anything or anybody to take care of them, I mean, for a time, I was homeless. Couldn't even afford ramen noodles. Um, I mean, seriously. Back then, ramen noodles were under 20 cents. Um, birthdays and Christmases alone. And then when he did come in, and I prefer that. I mean, I preferred that to having him in my life. Because it was so exhausting and scary. He was just so scary. Um, but he you know, he amassed this fortune. And so, so to see that kind of, um, financial abuse as well and that criminality, right. Cause they talk about people that are criminals, um, 
that are narcissists. That's psychopathy, right? He was a psychopath um, or he was a sociopath. And I, I don't know which, but, you know, we're watching this and this guy's killed two wives. And my husband turned to me and he said, do you think your dad killed anybody? And I said, not that I'm aware of, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I certainly think he could have killed me. He certainly threatened to a couple of times. Um, you know, one time when he had me up against the wall with his hand on my throat and told me that he was trying to kill in the Marines. Fun fact, my dad was in the Air Force, so that made no sense. It shows the how deranged he was, really, in his head and in his heart, this idea that he had created these almost multiple personalities, right, depending on who, but he knew, right, he knew he wasn't in the Marines, so it wasn't like he really had multiple personality disorder, he just played whatever part in the moment felt like it would be the best part to play, and if that meant he was a Marine when he was throwing his daughter up against a wall after throwing hot chocolate on her in front of her friend and threatening to kill her because he was in the Marines and it made it sound cooler, I don't know, then that's what he was going to do. Um... And then nobody ever asks questions, right? Like, wait a second. You don't ask somebody who's got their hand around your throat. Wait a second. I thought you were in the Air Force. You know, or at any point later because you don't want to end up against the wall again with his hand around your throat. My dad would squeeze our shoulders. Like, he put his hand on our shoulders in a heavy, almost like pushing you down. But then he would take, like, his thumb and his forefinger, you know, on either side of, like, our our collarbone, and he would just kind of squeeze, um, you know, and he'd have a smile on his face, because maybe there were people around, maybe it was for a picture, maybe you were at the mall, or going out to dinner, and even when I got older, he would do this, but he would squeeze, it was almost like, mm-hmm, you're mine, you know, you do what I say, perform, perform, and uh, I'll never forget that, like, there's just some things that, to this day, if I see somebody doing it or hear a certain word or see a certain look, it just takes you right back to those moments when he was so cruel and he was so cruel. And then he would promise things, right? So the part about being a narcissist is they promise everything because they want that reaction in the immediate. Oh, I'm taking you to Disney World. You know, never happened. He'd say that all the time. He wanted, for a long time, I didn't understand it. I just thought if maybe we were nicer to him or, and by nicer, I just mean we talked to him more and we're more like, Oh dad, you know, or I was very removed most of the time because I was trying to protect myself. Occasionally I would experiment just to see like, are these things he wants to do, but doesn't understand how to do it or, and that never materialized. He just wanted that instant. Oh, that's so nice. Dad. Thanks so much. That'd be wonderful. He never intended to do it. It was never going to happen. Um, so throughout my life, I have lots of stories about my father. But one of my, I don't think favorite is, I don't have any really favorite stories of my dad. Um, the only thing he actually really did for me at one point was he gave me a car. Now, there's a line in his will that says... Um, all debts owed to me by my children shall be forgiven. And when I read that, I just wanted to hurl. I mean, you know, if anything, you know, my dad owes his children 
for not paying for school, not paying for, you know, medical bills, not um, taking care of, you know, any kind of extracurricular activities, um, you know, not paying for food. I mean, we, we didn't have food. I lived with my mom when I was younger, when he first left. I mean, my dad really, he didn't care about his family. And uh, my mom did everything she could to provide, but she just didn't have enough money. And he knew it. He took a lot of pleasure in that. Um, got a new car, got a condo. My mom lived in the same house, drove an old car, had car problems. He's now trying to raise three kids. He'd come in on the weekends and drop us off at his new condo and his new car and basically ask us to tell him how great everything he had was. And then he'd go out with some woman and leave us there, whatnot. Or he'd only want to take one of us and not all three of us. And, you know, he'd come in, he'd take us out to eat or buy us pizza or whatever. And it felt good, but you realized, like, hold on, you could also just be giving her more money so she could do some of these things. But she just couldn't. I mean, she couldn't do anything. And she didn't want to ask for money from her parents, but her parents knew. And um, so they would occasionally give what they could, but they didn't have a lot to give either. And my mom suffered like that for years and felt terrible um, because she couldn't help. She also didn't, she wasn't a warrior mama. Like she wasn't, when my brother came back with, you know, obvious signs of abuse on his face, on his body, and he was young. I mean, he was probably eight or nine. Just heartbreaking. Um, and I was so mad. And she she didn't really do anything about it. Um, maybe she had a conversation with him that I don't know about. But she made excuses. My mom was just of a different generation. She was the youngest of large family and... He was a man. She was very religious, and he was a man. And, you know, she was afraid of him as well. I just don't think she ever found her voice there. To this day, she'll be like, oh, I wish I'd known these things. And I'm like, lady, you knew these things. Like, let's not pretend, right? And so did most of the adults in our life, including his family. There's no way you couldn't. In fact, one of my uncles told me that he used to read the letters. He'd send these horrible letters to us. Um, that he would send. So anyway, back to the line in the will. He wrote that in there. And like I said, my dad gave me a car one time and he loaned us money for a car at one point. Um, But we had paid him back almost completely in full. And he said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And uh, jokingly said, I'll take it out of your inheritance. Ha ha ha. Right. You know, and so you assume like he means that. So I got so mad when I saw that line. I thought, oh my God, you've got to be kidding. This guy that never did anything for us. If he did, there were strings attached. And, you know, it was just nothing compared to what he could have done out of love for his kids. But he never did that. First of all, he didn't have love for his kids or anybody really. Love for his money, for sure. But, um, and a, a girlfriend of mine who's an attorney said, no, 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 be glad that's in there. Because if you're telling me, like, that he wrote all this stuff down, it's very possible that he wrote stuff like that down, right? It's bullshit. You didn't actually own the money. You never signed anything. There was no, you know, real agreement that he was loaning you or, you know, that that car he gave you, you were supposed to pay back. But he might have written that down. And, you know, those crazy people could have tried to say that you owed money to the estate, So in some ways it protected us only because he lied probably about us. 
to everybody. And maybe he realized that at the end that it was a necessary thing, or maybe he just wanted to get one last zinger in. I won't ever know because I didn't see all those documents and I don't know what was there. Um, they took those. <laughs> so, and there were so many of them. Oh my God, there were bags and bags and bags and bags and bags and bags of stocks and, you know, insurance and this and that and annuities and IRAs and, you know, bank statements and deposits and old checks and just, and then thousands and thousands of dollars in savings bonds, which I'm sure they took and are probably pocketing, but the bottom line is he was just obsessed with money and he you know, only amassed that kind of wealth because he never took on the real responsibilities of being a decent human being. And then he was so proud of himself and looking back, God, he had the worst work, work ethic I've ever seen. And quite frankly, he didn't do much work. He also lied about getting his um, doctorate. So he started calling himself Dr. Ken, said he got his doctorate. Well, I find that very hard to believe. First of all, my dad's not a really intelligent person. He was not. Um, he didn't do great in school. He had a hard time getting into college. Um, he just wasn't like a, a savvy, intelligent human being, right? He was a bullshitter. And it's really hard to bullshit your way through your doctorate, right? There's things that are required of you. I've never seen, you know, any kind of um, paper that he's written or done. I asked him, you know, what, you know, what did you write for... I'm not even sure if this is the correct term for this, but your thesis and you had no answer. Um, I don't even know what he, if he knew what was required to get a doctorate, but um, never saw a diploma and that would have been hanging front and center. So, you know, we went with all these things where he was telling us how great he was and how wealthy he was or poor if he thought we weren't going to, you know, need something or whatnot, you know, it just depended on who it was at what moment, what time of the day it was and how he was feeling was who he was. And I think it's been really easy when I look back at all the things and think, you know what, no matter what I said, no matter what I did, no matter who I was or wasn't, no matter how tall I was or short I was or fat I was or thin I was or accomplished or wealthy or poor or happy or sad, it didn't matter. Nothing I would have said or done differently at any given moment would have changed the course of how this ended. Um, if anything, I think we have to be grateful that we weren't the ones taking care of him. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to digest because it's my dad and because of how things happened at the end, because I really do believe that they had something to do with his untimely death and his will being changed eight days before he died. And you know, that the witnesses were their friends and God knows who the, you know, the, um, notary was, I mean, there's just, you know, none of it makes sense. I know they took his stuff. I'm sure that they have pocketed and are living off of it and whatever. But at the end of the day, he was horrible and it ended how it ended. And it's not that surprising. And I wouldn't want to be there to suffer any more abuse than I already suffered. It was enough. So I'm grateful that I got myself out as much as I did, even though it was still very difficult being there 
talking to him and texting him at the end. And I did want to say goodbye and I wanted to hear what he had to say. Although I'm pretty sure it would have just been love you girls or some, I don't know, rant about how, you know, remember, I don't, who knows what he would have said. I think it would have been, I love you girls. I think my sister and I were there and Jillian, I think that's what he would have said. Um, I don't know. He might have exacted some kind of horrible words. Somebody's having the trees cut down next to me, so I'm outside. Um, but that's where I'm at. I just, I don't think it mattered. And, um, and all the abuse he suffered doesn't make me feel bad for him. Bad for his child self, but not bad for his adult self. And I think you need to separate those two. Right? But also don't think too much because so many people go through that and end up taking that pain and using it as perspective and empathy and you know using it as a good power instead of as a negative force and he chose to do the wrong thing and I want to choose to do the right thing and so wallowing in it and romanticizing what could have been, what should have been, which is really what we grieve when somebody like this dies, is what you had hoped for, not what was, right? So in that capacity, him being gone is a good thing, but it's a bad thing for hope because it's done. What's done is done. But realistically, it was never going to change. You'd have 5,000 years with my dad on this planet, and he never would have loved us. He never would have been proud of us. He never would have been a good dad. Um, he was always going to be that monster. Um, and there's a lot of good men that graduated from that school that have some of those same horrible stories, probably some of them that fell to the wrong side of that beam and were injured, who grew up to be good husbands, good fathers, good people, good stewards of the people around them and chose to give back. But my dad wasn't one of them. And he had to be somebody's dad. So he was mine. And I think I'm just trying to figure out, I don't really figure out. I think I kind of, I'm just, I'm kind of over it. I think I'm just, I think I got through it. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, in two weeks, you'll get one where I'm crying hysterically and I'm, oh my God. But I think more importantly for me, it's like, hoping people recognize the signs of a narcissist, especially one high on that spectrum like my father was, and that they remove themselves from that situation like I wish I had done a long, 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 long time ago. There's no amount of inheritance, um, and this is not a large amount of inheritance for the, the value of my dad's estate, or hope. There's not enough hope with a narcissist to make you stay. Especially if you have somebody like my father who doesn't just have some of the you know, the traits, but all of them and to extremes and um, it was always going to end bad. It started bad. It ended bad. And I am still here and my siblings are, although they are struggling because I don't think they're able to put it in that kind of a, you know, in that, that kind of perspective yet. I think they're going to get there, but they're not there yet. 
I just don't want to wallow in the pain. The pain just makes me hurt. So I'm going to just try to find the good things. Um, and I think it, my dad's story is very interesting. So I do want to talk about their life. Again, this is kind of a, a diary for me. I know I'm not performing, you know, like a regular podcast person. And that's fine. I'm not trying to get rich and famous or, you know, get a huge following. I'm just... If there is anybody listening, then hopefully they can take some of this and it'll help them get through some of the grief and recognize the signs of a narcissist and get out. Save yourself. You can't save them. It's you or them. It really is that stark. Um, you got to walk away, man. I don't care who it is, how long you've been married. Or how much you can think it work, make it work. It is, um, you can't, you can't, they'll give you just enough hope to keep you hanging on. And then they will punch you in the face <laughs> right after. Be like, oh, sorry, just kidding. And then you're right there. And then you're going to hate yourself for sticking around. That's probably the thing I hate the most is the times I got away and then I let him back in. I let him walk me down the aisle at my wedding and I shouldn't have I shouldn't have that would have been a really empowering moment for me and I think a real statement to the fact that I walk alone right um, I'm not his daughter, his little girl he's not my daddy he's the guy who made me with my mom but he never parented or loved the way he was supposed to um he terrorized and manipulated and caused a lot of pain. And I'm glad that that's gone. I am. I'm glad that's gone. So um, that's it for this episode. Uh, again, this is really just my diary. I like having it. Just putting my thoughts down sometimes. And um, I hope that it helps somebody somewhere. And I will uh, be back next time. And I want to go into my my dad's story a little bit more. And how he met my mom and my mom's story. They both have these haunting family stories. But like with completely different tones. My mom was, mom's was a loving family. But had a whole bunch of tragedy. And um, my dad's was not loving. And had a whole bunch of tragedy. So anyway, all right. Have a great week. Talk to you later. Bye.